Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Anna Quinlan was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times from 1977 to 1994, winning a Pulitzer Prize for commentary for her column Public and Private. From 1994 to 1999, she wrote a column for Newsweek and since that time has become a full-time best-selling novelist. I had a chance to speak with Anna Quinlan on April 8, 2016, while she was on tour for her latest novel, Miller's Valley. This is the third time I've spoken with Anna Quinlan. In this interview for KPFA's Book Waves and Arts Waves programs, she talks not only about her work as a writer but about the current political scene and opens up about her friend Hillary Clinton. And somewhere along the line, we agree to disagree. This new book, Miller's Valley, takes place mostly in the 1960s, mid to late 60s, and I guess early 70s. And it concerns a family living in what becomes a drowned town. And I understand that the origin of this came from something called the Tooks Island Dam Project from years ago. What was the Tooks Island Dam Project? Well, I don't want to overstate that as an influence on this book because while the water threat is quite real and I hope feels that way to the reader, it's also really metaphoric, at least to my mind. The Tooks Island Dam Project was a dam that they were proposing to build between New Jersey and Pennsylvania on the Delaware River. Unfortunately, there were some people in houses in the way. And I remember reading about that and reading about the fact that they removed all those people from those houses, either by buying them out or by eminent domain, and being pretty horrified. I tend to be a real homebody, a serious nester. I take where I am and where my family is very seriously. And the idea that the government could just disappear your home was about as horrifying to me as a thing could be. So it it sort of went into me and stayed there and I guess was a bit of an underlying cause when I started to think about Miller's Valley. But I think... At some level, it became bigger than that in terms of how I thought about the idea of this old farming community being threatened by government forces who wanted to turn it into a reservoir. We here in California have seen in the past year a lot of these drowned towns because of the drought. Suddenly, towns were appearing. They're gone now because it's rained. But suddenly, there were a number of towns in reservoirs and almost like once a week, on SF Gate, the Chronicle site, you'd see a picture of a steeple rising out of what's now a puddle. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Because, of course, it's not the idea that there's a steeple or even that there's buildings underneath. It's the idea that there were entire families 
whose life and livelihood were in those places, places that they can no longer visit, that don't really exist in the world, that have essentially been wiped off the map. The thing is, the more I thought about it as I was working on the novel, the truth is that for most of us, the places where we grew up have been wiped off the map anyhow. Not literally, but you go back to them and, you know, the candy store on Main Street is now a tattoo parlor and the houses that used to be so grand might be a little shabby around the edges and have given way to big new houses out of town. So that, you know, it is a truism that change is the only constant, but it remains true. You say that this is kind of a metaphor. That means that the origins of the story of Miller's Valley, the story of Mimi Miller and her family in this town in Pennsylvania came from somewhere else. So what brought you to decide to write about that particular era in that particular town? There were two things that I think were driving me as I was spending the months thinking about this before I ever started to write it. One was that I have always obviously been interested in, from a very personal point of view, the enormous changes in the lives of women just during my lifetime. And the whole idea that you could be a little girl in the 1950s with zero expectations and grow up to be a woman with a rich, full, professional and personal life. The second is the idea that America has amnesia, that we learn nothing from our past, that things happen in this country. You know, we go to this benighted war in Vietnam, or we learn that the government is utterly unreliable during Watergate, and somehow we unlearn it again. We paper it all over. And I think the water is both a metaphor for that, for forgetting our past, and it's also a metaphor for the fact that what passes for progress is frequently destruction. Gore Vidal used to call this place the United States of amnesia. It's absolutely true. I mean, maybe it's because, you know, whenever I'm in Europe or Asia, I'm immediately struck by the fact that we're basically toddlers on the world scene, that, you know, you're walking around Paris and they say, oh, this building was built in 14-something. And you think in 14-something, there were no buildings in the great city where I live. Maybe that has something to do with it. But it can be so infuriating to watch us make the same mistakes almost out of willful ignorance over and over and over again. Well, let's go back then to the key that turned and started this book. What was it specifically that made you say, well, now I'm going to write about the amnesia and the changing role of women in America? I think that usually I have a set of themes and interests that percolate below the surface all the time. You know, I'm Catholic, so I'm always thinking about redemption. I'm political, so I am always thinking about the United States and how it behaves. And feminism, second wave feminism, is essentially responsible for my entire life in some profound way. And so I'm always thinking about that. But when I'm thinking about a novel, early days, I'm just always thinking about a single character. 
And that was Mimi in this yeah. case? Yeah. I, I, my protagonist starts to change and grow and enlarge in my mind. And the themes emerge, but they're never exactly grafted onto that protagonist. They grow sort of organically out of when she's living, what kind of life she lives, what her birth order is, what her job is, all the rest. For example, in my last novel, Still Life with Breadcrumbs, when I started to think about Rebecca Winter, a photographer, and thought about her being in her 60s, the theme of reinvention of second acts in American lives, as Fitzgerald said, just loomed large, growing out naturally of her character and her situation. It was the same thing with Mimi Miller in this novel. When you're taking these long walks or whatever you're doing, are you also thinking story or does that come when you sit down and do the writing? I sort of am supremely uninterested in story. I think it's one of my greatest drawbacks as a novelist. I mean, my first novel in first draft literally had nothing that happened in it. The novel that I've most admired recently is a novel in which very little happens. It's a book called Stoner by John Williams, and it was reissued by the New York Review of Books Press. It was first published in 1965, and I think it's one of the great novels of the last hundred years, and no one had noticed it much recently. But nothing very much happens, and yet I I found it propulsive because you get under the skin of this man who's the protagonist of the book, and You're living inside him, really. And that's what interests me. Character is always first for me. What I've learned over the years is that if I create a character and surround her with other characters and they butt up against each other, that creates plot. But that's the only way in which I'm the least bit interested in story or plot. When the characters get in the room together and start to hit one another like balls on a pool table. I was uh, reading a transcript of your interview with Diane Rim and comment came up about how your mother and you kind of failed to communicate the important things were never said. And that's very much the relationship between Mimi and her mother in Miller's Valley. How conscious are those connections that wind up being, I don't want to use the word autobiographical, but they wind up coming from your unconscious that way. Actually, that's a connection that's not in the least autobiographical because the things left unsaid between my mother and I were things that were left unsaid because I was so young and because I was taking care of her while she was terminally ill. And she wanted to insulate me from the idea that she was dying. And of course, If you have serious, substantive conversations with your teenage daughter about what is to come, it implies that you're leaving soon. With Mimi, I think it's quite different. First of all, her mother is a very plain-spoken, pragmatic... I won't say she's cold. She's just very workmanlike in a way. She's a nurse, and she wants more for her daughter than she had. And I think one of the reasons why she doesn't open up or emote with Mimi is because she doesn't want Mimi to get comfortable where she is. She wants her to want more. And she's afraid that if Mimi has a high comfort level in Miller's Valley, she'll stay. And Miriam just wants her to go out in the world. So the similarity is purely surface. Yes. 
But also, I'm well aware that there are constantly unconscious and subconscious things that you're doing as a writer in novels. But I don't even think that was an unconscious one. I think with most of us who do this over the long haul, the first novel is highly autobiographical, the second less so. And by the time you get, you know, seven or eight or nine out, those connections become more tenuous. It becomes much more like sausage making in that you take everything you are and everything you've been and everything you've seen and you grind it all up together and it comes out in characters. The character of Tom, her brother, winds up being a Vietnam vet with, I guess, levels of PTSD. Uh, Did you do any research on that or was this more because Anna Quinlan has been a journalist for this long? You don't have to. I never do any research on any of my novels. I mean, I spent the best years of my life ewing very closely to the facts of the matter. And one of the great things about becoming a fiction writer was that I realized that the world I invented could be completely invented by me. And that's the case with all of the novels. And I don't know anything really about PTSD except things I've read or or seen in documentaries and so on and so forth. I just had a very powerful affinity for Tommy Miller. I really, really liked him. I felt like I really understood him. And I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what a couple of years of combat in the jungle would do to him. The character of Steve, her first boyfriend. (laughs) Yes. I guess he's kind of an archetype. The first boyfriend who just sweeps someone off their feet until they realize Wait a second. Wait, sweep off your feet is such a lovely and romantic term. The first boyfriend when you're dying to have sex with somebody. <laughs> that's what it is. It's not it's not lo- I mean this is a, a relationship. Mimi is very smart and she's very incisive at some level. And there's part of her that understands all of the unacceptable things about Stephen, but He's got that kind of surface charm, and she really wants to sleep with him. And she does over and over and over again until she realizes that there's maybe more to life than that. How close is Mimi to Anna Quinlan? How far do you go in differentiating your main character, in this particular case, from you? I mean, obviously, the biographical situation is different. But when you're looking out through her eyes to write the book, how much of that is still your reactions? I think in this case, very little. She's very different from me in a lot of important ways. Obviously, she's grown up in this rural environment. She's a youngest child. I'm a big believer in birth order, and I am, in fact, an eldest child, which both my husband and my son, who are both eldest children, say is why I'm a big believer in birth order. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I think eldest children carry a lot of weight for their parents. You show up first, and so first of all, your parents don't really know what they're doing. I'm actually expecting my first grandchild in about two weeks, and I can't wait to see my son and his absolutely fabulous wife with this little boy who I know they are going to overparent to a fairly well because, hello, I did the same thing. So that when Christopher came along, my second one, he had a kind of freedom of movement 
and freedom of positioning that Quinn never knew. I mean, you know, he didn't need to be this stand-up responsible guy because that job was already filled. And I think it really liberated him to be somewhat more authentic, although Lord knows the dynamic is always that you act in opposition to whatever the first one has done. Then you get the third one who basically is like, okay, you guys have your whole dynamic worked out. I'm just hanging out and being me. And I think Mimi has that. And she also has something that I've seen very clearly in my children because I have two sons and then my youngest is a daughter. My daughter is extremely tough-minded and extremely secure. And early days I thought, I really did a job on this one. And then over time I started collecting women I met who had two older brothers, and they all tended to be that way. And part of it was keeping up with the Joneses. Part of it was running after the boys and keeping up with the boys and so on and so forth. So I think Mimi is quite tough-minded because of that. She's a math science person. She likes the orderliness of the known universe and of equations in a way that has never really spoken to me. She has a different kind of voice than I have. And of course, that's a great challenge in writing a first-person novel, that if you get that voice right, you're about 90% of the way there. If you don't, you're totally cooked. The additional challenge in this novel was that since we first meet Mimi when she's 11, and we wind up taking her straight through to her early 60s. The voice had to remain constant, but slightly tweaked to account for maturation and and growth. And that was a little bit of a hat trick that I had to really work on. Anna Quinlan, a lot of writers, and I ask this question all the time, talk about characters taking over, characters doing things you don't want them to do, and yet, of course, you're in control at the same time. Did any character come in more? Did Aunt Ruth, for instance, become a bigger character than you anticipated? Or did it pretty much follow the lines you originally thought? I would like to be able to say that it followed the lines I originally thought, but there were no lines. I tend to know exactly what the beginning of the piece is going to be like, and I tend to have a pretty good idea about the end of the piece, but I'm usually completely agnostic about the middle. And the middle is where I really discover things. I think Mimi's mother, Miriam Miller, became a larger character than I had originally expected her to be. I think there were certain things about Ruth and about Donald that I hadn't seen coming until they were coming. And it's not exactly that the characters take on a life of their own. It's that you start to build them brick by brick. And at a certain point, they can only act certain ways or else you've turned them into marionettes. I mean, you know, if your plan was to have this character die at this point or run off at this point or say this or that, and it's utterly improbable given how you've built that character from the ground up. You're the writer. You can still do it. It's just that in your mind you can feel that uncomfortable thud of a reader closing the book and saying, I don't believe it. And 
if that happens, then game over. And so I think it's not so much that the characters take on a life of their own as that certain ends, as they say in A Christmas Carol, certain ends, once followed, will only turn out a certain way. And when you created a certain kind of character and you're starting to move forward, you think... Mimi would never act like that. Mimi would never say that. Mimi would never do that. The book develops its own internal logic, and if you don't follow it, it won't feel true. So there are certain places where you might have thought, Mimi will do this, and then you come to that place and go, nope. No, not the person I know now. And of course, you know, my editor always says that she should have a needlepoint pillow that says the first 50 pages will always have to be rewritten. Because in the beginning of the book, you are not so clear on what you're doing. And when she hands me back my manuscript, there's always a lot of scribbling on it. But I would say at about the two-thirds mark, it becomes less and less and less. And in the last 30 or 40 pages, there's usually nothing. Because by then, I know what I'm doing. And that's really what happens. That after a while, you just know down to the ground what you're doing. And you don't zig instead of zag because you understand that the material won't absorb that. Did you always know what would wind up happening with her brother, Tom? Yes, I think I did. Part of this was because I was a teenager during Vietnam. I'm always struck by the fact that with World War II, we had this kind of double advantage, if you will, if you can put it that way. One is that everybody came home feeling they'd done the Lord's work. And the other is that everybody came home feeling that they had no need to ever discuss it again because of the tenor of the times. Today, we've had conflicts, wars, in which everybody understands that discussion is really important and everybody has deconstructed what went wrong and what the mission was. And in between those two, we have Vietnam, where guys came home and nobody talked about it and nobody wanted to admit that it had been a benighted effort from beginning to end. And it left an entire generation of what I thought of as lost boys, because most of them really were boys who came back and had no clue where to place themselves. And it was pretty clear to me, given how charming and likable he was, but how little direction or drive he had, that Tommy Miller was going to wind up being one of those lost boys. Do you fall in love with your character? Oh, my God. (laughs) Utterly. Some of them more or less than others. It's not just that you fall in love with them. If you don't completely believe in them, neither will the reader. I mean, there's this great Robert Frost quote, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And I responded to it so viscerally when I first found it because if I'm crying when I'm writing a scene, there's part of me standing outside myself going, yes, because it means that I'm managing to evoke some sort of powerful emotion. And At some level, the emotion throughout is this deep connection with this place and these people so that at the end of a good day particularly, you almost have to wrench yourself out of Miller's Valley and out of 
Mimi and so on and so forth and go back to the real world, which seems slightly hazier and less improbable on a good day. Well, given the presidential situation, nothing is less improbable. I was speaking with um, the thriller writer Harlan Coben. He said that if he tried to write the story of Donald Trump, I no know. one would buy it. I know. I know. And Harlan's pretty good at that kind of stuff. His bad guys are, are really good bad guys. I was speaking to somebody at an event in New York City who's in his 80s and has been involved in politics very intimately for decades. And I said to him, is this the strangest political season of our lifetime. And he said, this is the strangest political season in the history of the nation. And to people who know more about the 19th century than I do, that may seem like hyperbole, but not by much. It's very sad that neither Gore Vidal nor Molly Ivins is around now. Oh, think of what a good time Molly would have had with this. However, I have to say this entire political season has been such a gift for Andy Borowitz of The New Yorker, who has been doing the most, I would say, satire, except that it's almost not satiric, given what's going on. Anna Quinlan, you were a columnist for a long time. Now, your focus was not on politics. It was on lifestyle and lives. But the two intertwine. And a quick question, do you miss having that venue now that things are so, I don't know, out of control? I don't, actually. I find this political season deeply dispiriting in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure there's that much to say about it. I mean, the rise of Trump and, to a lesser extent, Ted Cruz you write one column about how that reflects the anger of a disenfranchised white male class of a certain kind, and then it's kind of done. And then what you're left with is stuff that's so distasteful to me. I, I think the most abiding sentiment that I feel during this political season is a kind of a sadness because there are significant differences between the views of intelligent conservative Republicans and intelligent liberal Democrats about the roles of the state, about what the federal government could and should do, about the role of the court and the like. And we're not going to have those conversations. I just don't believe we will. I believe it'll be one crazy shot across the bow after another. There is a conversation going on between Clinton and Sanders, at least. Yes, I agree. You know, the Democratic debates look like I don't even know what compared to the Republican debates. And in the end, in the end, we can see one supporting the other, whatever the outcome you know, maybe with questions, but still, mostly, I think, because the other side is nuts. I think that's true. And I hope that when it comes down to it, on the Democratic side, there's a kind of a grace and a recognition of shared values. 
I don't know how you come back from what's happened on the GOP side, the kind of name-calling and demonization. I don't know, for example, how Marco Rubio stands in front of the convention and expresses enthusiasm for Donald Trump if he's required to do so. It's just gotten too ugly for that to be a possibility. Well, I think Rubio was pretty much pulled out. He said he's not running for the Senate and he's gone. You know, the other thing, I hate this whole process now. It's like the Bataan death march for these people. For two and a half years or so, they don't get a decent night's sleep. They don't get to stop to read a book, to collect their thoughts, to think deep thoughts. They get run all around the country. They must be so exhausted. And if they prevail, they get to not have a good night's sleep again for minimum four years. So there's a kind of insanity to how the entire process is set up now that's loaded in the worst possible way. I mean, many people have noted, and I think it's clearly very true, that the president suddenly appears to be governing with a light heart and a little bit of an elbow in the ribs for a lot of his his opposition. And let's be honest, enemies. And I think part of that is because obviously he never has to run for anything again. And part of it is because he thinks there's unfinished business that he no longer has to try to build bipartisan support for because the politics of personal destruction have utterly trumped bipartisan support. But part of it has got to be, and I would feel exactly the same way, it's almost over. I mean, what a job. What a life. (laughs) As we're speaking now, the animosity between Clinton and Sanders has grown, and all of these people are getting very upset about these things they're saying. And I'm thinking, you have two people who are in and around the age of 70 who haven't slept for 10 months, and they're testy, and they're going to say things. And it's not a big deal if one says, oh, the other isn't qualified because, you know, they haven't gotten any sleep. It's not a big deal. He walked back the not qualified shot, which is preposterous. I mean, Secretary Clinton is the most qualified candidate we've had for president in my lifetime, maybe ever. But he walked it back by saying, she was attacking me, so I attacked her. But the truth is, even when they're going at each other, they're not really going at each other. I mean, you listen to the two of them and you think... It is going to be possible for there to be a rapprochement. And there isn't this ugliness, which frankly has emanated almost exclusively, except during a crazy week Rubio had, from Donald Trump. I mean, he sounds like a middle school bully. Who calls his opposition losers and idiots? I keep saying, I am so glad that my children are adults right now, because telling your children, you know, as I once did, You cannot say shut up to somebody when you're angry at them. You cannot call them an idiot. You have to wait until they're finished talking before you respond. You can't interrupt them. And then having them turn on the news each night to this man who, among his other deficits, has the most deplorable manners I've ever seen. The idea of him representing the United States on the world stage is horrifying. Anna Quinlan, I'd like to ask you about a couple of things that I've seen in the world that are not quite this insane. What is your take on the millennial use of selfies, the selfie stick? 
I don't really know. I mean, I tend to be pretty upbeat about the millennials being the mother of three of them. I find them to be a really great group of people as a group who are really seeking balance in their lives under very difficult conditions, which is it's really hard for any of them to get a job. And in the city in which I live and in your neck of the woods, it's really difficult for them to find any place to live that they can pay the rent on. But in terms of their engagement with each other and the human qualities that so many of them bring to the table, I think they're kind of a group of good eggs. We have all this new technology that has come into being almost overnight. Who was I just talking with? We were talking about my first book tour, and we were talking about how the media escorts who used to take you around, there were no cell phones. There was no email. They had to stop and pick up faxes from place to place if your schedule changed. Well, that was just 25 years ago. So we've had this technological explosion, and some of the uses of it are just ridiculous, like selfies and selfie sticks and all the rest. And some of it, I think, you know, things like Kickstarter, my kids tend to have a lot of starving artist friends, and things like Kickstarter and YouTube enable them to put their work out there in a way that it wasn't possible for people of our generation. And at the same time, though, we have this new generation of people screaming at each other in social media. Exactly. And sometimes the Twitterverse is about as ugly as it gets. Although my experience with reading comments and tweets online that are really, really on the edge is that they tend to come less from the millennials I know and more from people who are more around my own age and haven't really developed the appropriate tech etiquette as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Well, that is true. The millennials, well, obviously millennials have supported Sanders and I think it has to do with the fact that they're looking at a world where they will see real climate change and they will see things change, and they are living at home. My 25-year-old nephew would love to move out of his parents' place in, um, in the Bronx. He can't. Exactly. But, you know, I sort of see Sanders as kind of a prototype. I mean, a lot of my friends say to me, I don't understand these kids, especially these young women. How can they support Sanders? Obviously, they should support. And I say, do you guys remember Eugene McCarthy? Because I remember Eugene McCarthy really well, and he was a really decent, intelligent man who seemed to promise a certain kind of revolution at a time when a lot of us felt like a certain kind of revolution was necessary. He was not going to be president of the United States. He ought not to have been president of the United States, but I understood completely why people my age embraced him. And I understand the impulse that makes people their age embrace Sanders. Well, there's also income inequality, and he's talking about it. What bothers me about Clinton is a certain cluelessness. If she was actually listening to what he's saying rather than just occasionally mouthing the words, I'd be much happier. I think, I think she listens to what he's saying. I think the biggest difference between them is Hillary is extremely pragmatic and she knows how to work the system. And the only way you get anything done is to work the system. 
I think the problem frequently with liberals is that they forget that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And they're not willing to take half a loaf. Well, the truth of the matter is with half a loaf, you still get to eat. But with no loaf at all, you're hungry. And I think, uh, I, I think Hillary is somebody who really knows how to get things done. On the domestic front, on the international front, she's to the right of Obama, but I don't want to go there. I would like someone else. Let's just put it that way for that reason. Uh huh. Well, I, I want to say something about that because I actually have a great deal of admiration for some of what Hillary did as Secretary of State. One of the biggest problems around the world is the condition of women and girls in a variety of countries. Because what we know, what the data points show us, is that where women are working and girls are educated, an entire nation does better economically and psychologically and can compete on the world stage. And I think the conditions of women and girls around the world is something that Secretary Clinton worked on during her entire time as Secretary of State in a sub rosa level that didn't get noticed, one, because in most countries it was more advantageous to do it on a sub rosa level and not embarrass the leaders of those countries. And two, because I think as a matter of foreign policy, a whole lot of people in the power structure don't really care about that issue. But I care about it deeply and I think she made a significant difference on it. And then there's Israel. I mean, there's some issues that, you know, if she just listened to Kerry on those things, I'd be happier. I really don't like interventionism by the U.S. military interventionism. And when Sanders said, I would not be in the same room with Henry Kissinger, nor call him a friend, mm -hmm. I went, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. I couldn't agree with that more. And I fear the day when we treat Henry Kissinger as we've treated Richard Nixon after he's gone, treated Ronald Reagan after he's gone, treat Nancy Reagan after he's gone, where suddenly we erase the past, the real past. And certainly, I mean, I will never forget when Secretary Clinton gave speech on the floor of the Senate about the war resolution, which was one of the most eloquent expressions of why we should not go to war and then voted to approve that resolution. And that was a moment of great disappointment for me personally. But having said all that, I've known her since 1992. You um, know her? Yes, I do know her. Okay. Um, I've known her since 1992. I have always been dazzled is the only word by her intelligence and her grasp of the issues. And I think that she would be an exceptional president. Agree to disagree. I don't know her personally, so all I can do is look at what I see, look at the cluelessness of elements of the campaign, her statement about the Reagans and AIDS. She should have known better. I mean, and it was walked corrected. it back within minutes. She walked it back. Well, she didn't merely walk it back. She had someone write something. She couldn't have written it because it was just too good. But she knew she'd made a mistake almost immediately. Did you talk to her ever? No, I didn't. But I knew that the campaign would walk that back immediately because I knew that they would realize that that was a serious 
I won't even call it an error in judgment. Frankly, I, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but let's go back to what we were just discussing about how tired these two people must be. I mean, I, I think that that was just a classic what the hell did I say moment and that they walked it back. The, the longer medium piece took a full day, but the walk back happened almost in real time. It was a crazy suggestion. I mean, given the Reagans on AIDS, which was uh, uh, whose entire attitude was a deplorable kind of turning away. You know, she's not a great campaigner either. Right. And that is a problem. Bill is a fabulous campaigner or was a fabulous campaigner in 1992. (laughs) Look, I mean, one of my friends said to me early days, who's also a big supporter of hers, she said, I predict lousy campaign good presidency. And I think that's exactly what you're going to see. I mean, policy wonks, and she is a policy wonk. I mean, there's no subject you can throw at her where she doesn't say to you, oh, well, you really ought to look into a program they have in Scottsdale, Arizona for water maintenance. And you're like, really? Because I can't even remember my cell phone number. But policy wonks do not make good intuitive campaigners. It's it's a different set of skills. Also, there's a little bit of that that personality that's like love me, love me, love me, which Bill has. I mean, you know, there's a wonderful scene in the movie Primary Colors, which is a much better movie than most people recognize, where the Bill Clinton equivalent is sitting in a donut shop in the middle of the night talking to one guy who's banning the counter. That is who Bill Clinton is. It's not who Hillary Clinton is. Is she surprised by the number of people who don't like her? Oh, I don't think so. Look, she started out in Arkansas as first lady with a significant number of natives of that state who were deeply suspicious of her. Who is this woman who's come in, you know, with no makeup and Coke bottle glasses and taken Bill Clinton away. And then she went to the White House and there were people who just hated her. I mean, said the, I, she's, look, she was publicly accused by various crazies of murder when she was in the White House. And I think probably the Senate is when, when things got materially better. I remember this piece that the New York Times ran about six months after she arrived in the Senate. And it was basically her Senate colleague saying, wow, I had no idea she's really such a pleasure to work with. Gosh, she's so smart and she works so hard. And for those of us who were familiar with her, it was like, okay, guys, you're inventing the wheel. This is who she has always been. But the virtual versions of her have taken on such a life of their own that people come to believe in them until they actually interact with her. I guess for me, I interviewed Chris Hedges last year and I mean his view of America. Such a smart guy. Uh, gloomy Gus, but. Yeah, but very smart. Really smart. And his view is not that this is about personalities, but that the entire system that we're living in where the elites of the world are kind of grabbing everything they can, that Hillary is part of that. And his feeling was that by Bernie joining the Democratic Party, that he sort of 
gave in a little bit, though he understood that, you know, if you're going to get elected, you have to do that. How do you view that kind of perspective on Clinton? I think that to be president of the United States and to get elected president of the United States under our current system, you have to have support from all different kinds of constituencies, among them people who are very rich and powerful. I don't think that's a huge change from the past. I don't think it's a huge change from when Teddy Roosevelt had support from those kinds of people. I don't think it's a huge change from even some of the elections in in the 19th century. I do think that the biggest change and the most unfortunate change during our lifetime is big money and the extent to which campaigns run on unconscionably large amounts of money. And it has changed everything. We had a fundraiser at our home for Senator Gene Shaheen, who's a very, very pragmatic and really honest down to the ground woman. And during the Q&A, I said to her, Senator, how come you guys can't get anything done? I mean, how come nothing works in the Senate? And she said, we don't really know each other or spend any time with each other. She said, what I hear about the stories of the Senate in the 50s and 60s is that those senators, Senator Humphrey, Senator Jackson, Senator Symington, that when they weren't on the Senate floor, they saw a lot of each other. They talked to each other. She said, when we're not on the Senate floor, we're either here in New York City or back in our home district or someplace else raising money for the next race. She said, and it did my heart good to, to hear it, the only exception are the women of the Senate who try to have dinner together as a group once a week. And if you look at some of the bipartisan initiatives of recent years, they tend to be a Republican woman senator and a Democratic woman senator. But she said this treadmill, this hamster wheel of having to raise money because the television markets get ever more expensive, because the direct mail has to be funded, it's changed everything. And um, God, I, I wish there was some way to get rid of it. I wish. It could start with somebody getting rid of Citizens United, but it has to go a lot further. Yeah, but I mean, Citizens United, to my mind, is perhaps the worst Supreme Court decision of the last 50 years or so. I could argue that 2000 Bush v. Gore. Well, that one, that one, <laughs> that one is up there. But you know, Citizens United. When you think of all the other issues, when you think of the power of unions, when you think of abortion rights, Citizens United trickles down to everything because of that corporations are people mentality. I remember writing two columns when I was at Newsweek powered by a, a terrific guy named Paul Sittenfeld who's based in Ohio. He was trying to uh, foment a movement on campaign finance reform and I wrote columns about it, and between the two of us, we got exactly nowhere. <laughs> Anna Quinlan, now you've written Miller's Valley. Has there been any interest from Hollywood? Apparently, it's making the rounds, but I'm, um, I, I'm really agnostic about that. I mean, everybody gets very excited and jumps up and down, and somebody options it, and then you don't hear anything for a year and then they option it again and then you don't hear anything for 18 months and it's always a crapshoot there and if something gets made 
what you learn over time is that that's the exception, not the rule. Are you working on anything now? I'm working on a new novel. Do you see yourself writing more essays? Probably not. Really? I mean, I, I think of myself as a fiction writer now. And, um, you know, maybe maybe something will present itself where I suddenly think I want to go back to nonfiction for one book or a series of pieces. But right now I just see myself writing novels. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.